Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. My guest today is Siri entrepreneur, AI expert, technology thought leader, and tech advisor to the German Chancellor, Chris Bose. In this program, he is challenging current understanding of AI, its role in addressing grand global challenges, how society should deal with information, and how to structure the future of labor through digital business models. Enjoy the show and share it widely. Christian, thank you so very much for participating. So the first question for you, how can we jumpstart the economy and avoid the regression to the old ways of doing things, the trickle-down system that did work, particularly for entrepreneurs like you? And so how would you suggest moving forward? Um, so you've said a few very interesting things, right? QE, uh, I wouldn't even call that the solution. It's just a way of buying time uh, under uh, under circumventing uh, the natural mechanisms of inflation, right? Which is something that should have happened if you print that much money. Um, so it's an interesting mechanism and, and some uh, economists have been very creative there. Um, but as you said, it, it, it could have been used to foster serious change. Um, it didn't. Of course it didn't because um, change is something that you must want, right? And the, the interesting part about change is that there's also failures, right? And especially in the, in the world of business, which is a more difficult to change than the world of consumers. Um, consumers can change businesses because they have a different demand, but for businesses to change themselves, that's very difficult uh, if they're supposed to survive the change because you have to convince more than one person uh, and you've got to come at the right time and there, there are so many different interests in there. So that change is much, much harder um, than I believe. Uh, now, the question before COVID-19 that I was asking a lot is there is an opportunity because there is the platform economy and the normal economy. Um, there should have been an incentive for them for the established economy to change um, in a time when there was totally enough money um, and everybody had a good business uh, and so on. Um, but everybody was threatened, threatened by um, exponential models. Um, that only few, very few companies had. And our typical reaction to this was we blamed those companies that had the exponential models rather than asking ourselves, how can we get there? Maybe a, kind of a European trait, right? In America, you look at someone who's getting rich and you say like, wow, how did he do it? I want to do it too. Uh, and in Europe, you go like, that guy's rich. How can we take it away? Um, that's probably not the right thing to do. Um, now, we have a, a crisis. We have a major crisis. We have a crisis on all levels, right? We have the crisis in the economy. Um, we have a crisis in identity. I mean, if the economy totally breaks down, if for a couple of months we only buy what is necessary, that means that whatever, 50% of what we buy is unnecessary. Um, and is that a sustainable way of living, right? Um, that, that, that is crazy. So we have, we have a crisis in, in society. We have a crisis in the economy. We have a crisis in identity. Um, and you can see it falling apart, left, right, and center, right? And there's extremists, there are, there's people um, uh, 
uh, doing big evolutionary uh, experiments by going out to demonstrations and having a party and seeing how how a disease can spread. And that's worldwide, right? So yeah, definitely, we now have a crisis. And the crisis is a motor of change. Um, normally, it's a motor of change that is very uncomfortable to us. Um, so is this crisis. People die. It's horrible. Um, we could have done change without that, just by sheer will, but we didn't because it was so comfortable. Now we do change um, because it is necessary to survive. Um, and that's on a personal level, but it's also on an economic level. Um, but our, our initial reaction to this is to um, create special financing for special things. Um, and the, that does not change anything, right? So um, you, you know that I'm totally into the car industry, even though I'm literally blind and I can't drive a car. So I want autonomous cars because I think it's a great model. And it's a model to, to be way more efficient and to be way re more resource efficient. And it's, it's uh, a model that, that can contribute to uh, a more green future uh, and so on. Uh, but incentivizing people to buying cars is not a solution for anything. And then if, you're, if you don't know whether you're going to have a job uh, in, in a year from now, and if you've got any brains, you're going to ask twice if you're going to buy a car or not. Right? So that's a, that's a very um, weird thing um, that is happening here. And uh, this is why I think that, that we have to rethink. Right? In, in the financing business, when it started, like a bank, and when people in Italy were sitting out in front of the benches in front of their uh, homes because they had enough and they were giving it away for a short term time because they had the money for a long time. Right now, we're collecting money um, short and giving it away for a long time. So that financing scheme in banking uh, is, is kind of weird. And you can see that shift, right? Is, it is shifting all the time. Um, Banking is shifting to more short-term financing. Then you have the PEs, they go more into banking. They, they now have debt funds and so on. And then you have the VCs. The VCs now go into uh, where the PEs used to be, the private equity people, right? They now finance growth instead of, of venture. Um, and then you have left, probably left it to private people to finance venture. And you can see a lot of family offices now stepping into financing venture. So we've got this, sh uh, if you want, shift right uh, in, in financing that's already going on. And we've got to ask ourselves, like, how much of the money in the system is really required? And how much is just pushed around between banks? I mean, one of the, one of the big things that I think was the, the criticism of the 2008, 2009 crisis and the aftermath of that, that is that because we need the banking system to finance economy so that economy can keep going, um, but the banking system only uses very little of this liquidity to actually finance economy. A lot of that is just kept inside the banking system and pushed around um, to keep the financial system going as it is, right? So that was a lot of the criticism there. And we, uh, you're right, we didn't change that much, right? So. Now something very interesting happens, right? Because of the crisis, and it's not that much a question of the banking system anymore. Banks suffer like everybody else because their risk models suffer, and there's, I mean, risk has become kind of an unpredictable thing. And we find out that models like value at risk um, don't work, right? They're binary. If you lose, you don't lose the five percent that you think. It's a five percent probability that you lose. Now you lose everything, right? So that that is, um, we see all these risk models hitting home. Um, and that's happening. By the way, I like your picture. Um, <laughs>
<laughs> and um, so now we have the lender of last resorts, which are the governments that can print money, um, that in the 2008 crisis stepped in to financing the banking system um, and the government system. If you look at the QE part or, or the buyback program started by the ECB. Um, so these lenders of last resorts um, are, are no longer the um, central banks, but they're the governments directly now. And they're no longer lenders of last resorts, they're investors of last resorts, right? So if you can't find an investor for an airline, the government is investing. If you can't find an investor for a startup, um, even though it's promising, but the crisis obviously makes the business go away, the government has to step in and so on and so forth, right? So we've, we've kind of, the government now is lender of last resort and um, investor of last resort. Um, while at the same time, we say that government is highly inefficient and, and so on and so forth. Um, and also because now government has to deal with the question of financing the present, um, the thing that a government actually should be doing, which is um, financing a strategy to take us to the future, right? That takes back seat, naturally takes back seats because we're right now in, a, in the crisis management mode. Um, so there, from every interest group in the world, there is now a cry for help because it was nobody's fault Right, even though there's lots of conspiracy theory, right? And it's, um, it's everybody's fault, of course. It was nobody's fault, right? It was clear a, a, a pandemic can happen. It's kind of our worst nightmare and it just happened. And it's nobody's fault. So all these companies, all these people have gone into distress um, without doing anything wrong or bad. Um, and of course, there's a few companies that excel in this, right? If you happen to produce uh, masks, then your, uh, your pricing uh, has just increased by a factor of 100. And maybe it's not nice, but that's how the market works. Um, and people are shamed for all kinds of things, uh, like trying to help. But very few people are shamed for actually using the market mechanism to make a project, profit. And you can debate that on a society level, but market-wise, and in the system that we live in, that's how it works, right? So... I'm not very happy with that, I must say, um, because there should be a limit um, of, of uh, what is happening. Anyway, uh, in this, this crisis, we now have the government stepping up um, and they do, right? All of them do. Um, like literally globally, any government that has any money does it. Um, and I think there is two things that we should be looking at. Number one, we have we live in a globalized world and this idea that people now are fostering in some theories that we could have all of a sudden localize it again and nationalize it um that doesn't work i mean just go back to the 1920s in the 1920s you could mail order stuff from india and a couple of days later it would be there um that that was a globalized world and then the economic crisis came. We localized it more, not due to economy, but because of nationalist movement. And the result was horrible, like absolutely dreadful, like global war. That's worse than global pandemics because now people do it to eat to each other. So I think number one that we should have to learn from this is solidarity. 
Like we are in this as a team. We don't, we can't separate. Like the whole question of no matter how much we're supposed to socially distance, still people are social animals um, and we're in it together, right? We caused it together, the spread. Um, we want to go back outside, so we're, we're keeping it alive together. Um, we've got to solve it together. Um, and that doesn't just mean the rich paying for the poor or the, the wealthy financing the unemployed or any of that, but it means that everybody has to contribute to what they can. Right? If your contribution happens to be money, it happens to be money. So I think solidarity is really important because the alternative to solidarity is a, a violent consolidation. And I'm not talking about violent in the sense of extreme in an economic sense, but violent in the sense of physically harmful. Um, and we don't want that to happen. Like no one in his right mind should want that to happen. Um, and we, I am part of a generation that has never seen war. Um, I, I'm also part of a generation who was fortunate enough to have two grandmas that talked to me about it. I don't want to see it. I definitely, and I don't want my kids to see it. So the only way out of this is, is to not separate. The only way out of this is to be together and um, chip in together. I mean, you know the NASA problem, right? The NASA problem where you find out, where you dump all the things that were in Apollo 13 and say, like, this is the problem, go solve it. And you find out that um, a team of averagely intelligent people will always find a better solution than the most intelligent guy by itself, uh, by himself, yeah, herself, whatever, right? So um, it's a team effort. We've got to solve it together. That's the only way that we can do it. Unfortunately, we're seeing different tendencies, right? We're seeing different tendencies by uh, large players, I'm not even sure if we should call Donald Trump the U.S., right? But at least he's representing. Um, um, and that's, but we, we see it in extremist parties all over the place. For the entire time where things look dire on uh, the infection rates and the death rates and so on, all these nationalist movements all shut the fuck up, right? Excuse my French. And now they're back, right? They know everything. Wisdom of hindsight. Um, and it, it is terrible because that's not the solution. The solution is solidarity also on a financial matter. I believe very strongly is the only way of, of getting there. Um, the second thing is, obviously, if we don't want a lost generation, which I hope no one wants, even though it's a natural mechanism, and evolution is a natural mechanism, and extinction is a natural mechanism, no one wants to experience that, right? So stop saying it's a natural me mechanism. We are, we've been given brains and intellect to avoid that kind of crap. Um, so we have to find a way of, of moving forward. And that definitely has something to do with government financing because that's the way we set up economic systems. Um, we can do this in two ways, right? We can try and finance as much of the economy as possible and keep it up and running. Um, and we can, or we could try and replace as much of the economy as possible, which would be very disruptive. So. Um, let me start with the uh, how can we be disruptive or how would we be disruptive? It means that we would switch to financing startups only, right? And of course, as an established company, you could create startups and so on, but we should, from a government side, finance startups only, and we have to make that super easy, right? Um, on, on business planning, on blah, it really has, like, doling out money like crazy, basically, um, and making the bet that if there are enough people doing it, enough companies doing it, then uh, something good will come out of it. 
I've heard this a lot and it, it's kind of an appealing statistical idea, um, but I would not do that, right? It's too much of a gamble. Um, and there's enough gambling going on already. Um, and then you have to also think that this gets lost into in tactical play. There's lots of elections going on. There's an election in the US coming next year. There's an election in Germany coming next year. There are other elections all over the place, right? So th this kind of a concept probably would get lost in, in tactical moves. Um, the other one is, let's look at financing economy as, as a, a whole thing. Here, I've made a suggestion. Um, and the problem is that by financing the economy, can you also set incentives to do the things that we direly need to do, right? So I'd say there's three things that we need to do, right, immediately. Number one is we have to have a massive investment in education, right? Because that is the only thing that will prevent us from uh, going down the wrong routes in terms of extremism and, and so on. The value of education is greatly underestimated and education to most people is school and college um, but the question we are we are evolutionary uh, organisms education is something that happens your entire life and it should happen your entire life and and i think that we've got to um have this as an investment as a society investment and something that we should be doing the second thing that we should be investing in is is um digitization Right? Change of the economy towards a service model, towards more effective use of resources and so on, which brings me to the third point, which is um, uh, sustainability um, in terms of ecological, but also social sustainability as we have here. Right? Because it's, there's, if you have 99% who have nothing and 1% who own all, um, that doesn't work. But if you have... Uh, 2% who do all the work and 98% uh, who just say, give me, give me, that doesn't work either, right? So uh, it's sustainability in both ways. It's an equilibrium. You've got to find an equilibrium and it needs to move, right? It's not, an, it's not a point landing. It's not like communism or anything. That didn't work, right? You can't plan the future, um, but you can react to an, to an equilibrium that's being created. So I think that the, the point is if we want to invest in these things, we will have to find a way of... Um, keeping economy alive. I think that's the, the foremost thing is that we have to go in and say like, we wanna make sure that people still have jobs because as long as they have jobs, um, there's security, there's no reason for civil unrest. Okay, there might be other reasons, but let's not go into that right now. Um, there's no reason for civil unrest. There's no reason for being afraid that you can't feed your family. There's no reason that you're afraid to have if you're cons uh, leave your cons uh, comfort zone. And that means that even companies that do nothing or have nothing to do um, will find something. I mean, sure, there's always going to be the guilty few um, that just take the money and run. But most people just can't sit around. Like, I don't know about you, but if you let me sit around for longer than a week, right, I go get very antsy about it. Uh, and I think that's with teams too. So if we would have teams that have nothing to do because they're currently not, I don't know, cooking or producing cars or whatever, these teams will start thinking and doing something new. So which economic models would you suggest adopting in order to ensure that? I mean, 
we have all kinds of circular uh, economic models, the uh, cradle to cradle, the donut economic model, which, you know, since you're talking about integrally, what I call integrally sustainable economic models, which one would you suggest we adopt to address these issues? I, I don't think the, the whole question of a system change, if you want that, um, that's a radical move. And it's an intellectual, intellectually great discussion, right? But it's not realistic because systems don't change like this. Systems change like this, right? So um, we have to we have to find out um, how we get this. And an old system looks very successful until it crashes, right? So the system goes like this, and then it goes like this. It doesn't go like that. So maybe we should put some some graphs into the cast here. Oh, I, well, I agree. You're basically showing how technological advances occur, how technological evolution occurs. It just goes in waves. And well, that's just, true for economics just, as well. Also, I mean, if you look at IT, right? IT is a big oscillating system. Like now we call it cloud um, uh, because it's distributed. Before this, there was the mainframe, everything was centralized. Then there was PCs, everything was distributed. Then there was client server, everything was kind of centralized and a bit distributed. Then there was the web, everything was totally distributed. Now we're doing uh, web applications and so on, right? This is, this is uh, it's oscillating. Anyway, but that's not what I wanted to say. What I'm trying to get to is, is the financial system is basically the oil that enables these transformations. It is wrong that we now have uh, idolized it and put it on a throne and everything gravitates around creating more money. So from your perspective, what are the fault lines of the financial, the current financial system? And how would you address it? From my perspective, as an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur and investor, when you decide to invest in a company or start a company, you have to make the decision for profit, not for profit. These are the only choices. And when we're talking and you're talking about sustainability and moving forward with a different system, we need to start right there, get rid of that kind of schizophrenia that in, you know, in order to enable more hybrid systems that take social and environmental and, and, and other aspects and of course financial sustainability into account. So let me make a very practical suggestion, right? Please. And I, I'm not looking at the financial system as a whole. I think that the function of a bank is, is very clearly defined in our economic model uh, and it's to transform from uh, long-term to short-term, right? So. That's, that's what it should do. And it needs to get back to that, right? And it, it's not supposed to fuel itself. Um, and a lot of the surplus money needs to go into entrepreneur. It needs to go into ventures. Like look at the most successful stock ever, which was the East India Company. If you write the prospectus for the East India Company today, that would never float, right? You're writing a thing like, dear investor, we're going to take your money. We're going to buy ships. We're going to have them sail an ocean. We don't know where to. Um, some ships will surely not arrive. We're going to go to a country. We don't know which. We're going to meet people. We don't know who. We're going to buy stuff from them. We don't know what. Um, we're going to take the stuff home. On our way home, we're going to lose more ships. But with a few, few ships that come back and arrive, um, we're going to make shitloads of money. Right? That's the business model of the East India Company. No one would invest in this today. Like only, only business angels would invest. And in our current system, business angels are the ones being diluted like crazy. 
Um, so that that doesn't work. But let me make a more broad like this. This is the question of how can we finance startups better, right? So let me make have a look at the economy. If we want to secure jobs, I think that governments should give out credit to any company. Doesn't matter whether it's halfway dead or uh, super growing. Any company that wants it. Um, and the credit should be based on the pay payroll. Like you say, I'm going to finance your payroll for half a year or a year or two years. Doesn't matter, right? Depending on how how strong your economy is. Um, and there's only two conditions for you to get the credit. We're not going to look at your credit record or anything. There's two conditions. You cannot change the amount of people you have working for yourself, and you like you cannot lower that you can increase it of course but you cannot lower it under the point where i gave you the credit and you are not allowed to um change like the salary distribution so that the overall payroll can change because the goal is to keep people in jobs now as any sane economist you're or, or a business person you're gonna sound like no way this is the government is going to tie me down as a company i need to be able to breathe and so on and so forth right and you say okay that's no problem. You can pay back the credit and then you can do whatever you want. Or um, you can meet a few goals. You can show us um, digital transformation and we will waive part of the credit or the entire credit as funding you got from us. Um, but we will waive it after you have shown results or after you have created sustainability in your product, like cradle to cradle, um, if you do that, we'll waive it too, right? This has three advantages, I would say. Number one advantage is because you're giving out credit, you don't completely ruin the government finances. I mean, look, the, the, I think the German annual budget is around 300 and some, some billion a year. Now we're creating um, financing instruments for 3 billion. That's 10 times annual spend. Like that, that's scary, right? Um, and the, I mean, a, a strong economy can take a lot, but how long can it take it for? Um, and then what? But if you do it on a credit basis, these are all assets. The, the government household, household is not damaged. Now, as a government, you of course, you can manage insolvency, right? You can say, of course, you have now financed a ton of businesses that should have gone insolvent. Um, but you can you can drag it out over 20 years, right? To not ruin a your job market or b your state finances. The second thing that you can do is obviously even if the businesses that were supposed to go insolvent, you've given them a second chance. They can now innovate. They can now digitize or produce sustainability, um, and all of a sudden they got money for free put it like that, because they have contributed to a goal that pays into the greater good, right? And that makes a lot of sense. So number one, you can make sure that, that the government uh, finances don't explode. Number two, um, you've actually incentivized innovation and sustainability. And number three, you are able to set much higher goals. Right? Because today, if I say like, I am going to give you, there's a fund where you can have whatever, a uh, hundred thousand euros or a million or 10 million or whatever, right? I could always go and say like, okay, but the goals have to be kind of achievable, right? 
um, because you want people to take the money. You don't want, because you need to pump the money into the economy, right? So you've got to set low bars. But if, if you've already financed the economy, Job loss is not a question anymore. You just go in and you say like, ah, oh, that's what we do. We finance the economy. Now we can set a high bar for making this. We can say like digital transformation, seriously, you're, you, we will give you all that money for free if you changed your business model completely. And you can adjust the goals. You not can only set high bars, but you can also um, adjust the goals to your experience. So if you're expecting to basically turn these credits into uh, investment over the next 20 years, every year you could review what works and what doesn't, right? And you can go there. And the companies who want the breathing room, um, they have a big incentive to either pay back the credit so they can do whatever they like or um, do the innovation or transformation or contribution to sustainability so they can go back to what, doing whatever they like, right? All the incentives are there. I think that would be a great way of gradually changing the mindset of people from pure profit into transformation, change is good, and sustainability. And then you can talk about all the different mo models where you foster uh, localized food production and all these other things that are, that are good. Uh, but don't go to extremes. Like the, the counterpart to, to total globalization is not total uh, egotism. Yeah, I agree. I, as you might know, I grew up in communist Romania. And in there, the communism didn't allow any unemployment. So everyone got a job and all the companies had to hire you and they had to, to feed you. The system didn't work because of many reasons, one of which is the ideology behind it and the willingness to lie. And the question here would be, what should kind of governance would we have to have in order to implement that? So that's, that's a big question because I agree with you, we need to move in these directions. The question is governance, what is the short, medium and long term as to how that should be implemented, which for me, that's a kind of an open question. So we need to put our heads together in solidarity, as you said, in order to address them. But what well, I but would like to, sorry. Can I make a remark on this, right? I mean, this is the great thing about democracy. If we, if we did something like this and we said like every year we should have a review on what is the transfer, like how, how do we set achievement of transformation uh, or sustainability so that credits are waived into something? You set that in front of parliament. I mean, this is, the parliament is supposed to be a representation of the people. So there you go. That's where, where it needs to be. And that's the difference to a, a well, communist system that was run by a, a, an elite that actually right, never went in, into the idea of, of the part is you have a parliament that can adjust on an annual basis. They're not going to be great, but they're going to be representative. Yeah, and we need to ensure, as you said, that the mindset is... Uh, is uh, comes from a world-centric high-level levels of consciousness and not from lies because as we see in America and you mentioned Trump you know lies are part of the current democracy being run there so that is a very very tricky question so uh, it's a kind of worms that I'm not sure we want to go into but you are um, a world acknowledged and famous 
expert on exponentially growing technologies, artificial intelligence, and so on. So from your perspective, so what should exponentially growing technology, what kind of role should they play? And how can we ensure that this digitization that you basically encouraged, uh, how should that be informed and applied and developed, which from my perspective is key to trans social transformation and environmental transformation. So, I mean, I've, I've just been uh, in the press uh, out there being marked as, as a, a failure or a liar or overseller or whatever, because there are failed projects. Right? Which is normal. That's, that's why I would hire you as an entrepreneur. That I'm making, if, if you are a person that can get it right every time in a complex environment, like if you, you can get it right with two components, right? Can you get it right with three, five, 10, 100? Um, if you're that type of person, uh, you're a miracle, right? You need a, like these people, I have not met any of them. And the whole point is that you should not blame either the, the people who try or who, who promote technology, um, nor should you um, blame the people who actually try to implement it, right, in their complex environments and then fail. The point is that failure is not just a question like, like something going wrong or not being successful is not just a question for a startup, right? This is also a question for the larger companies, the company. Transformation is not a step-by-step -step process that you just have to execute. It's a question, it's a, it's a process of making experiences and learning from those experiences. Uh, and some of those experiences are unpleasant. Projects will fail, right? But then you pick it up. And the point is in an exponential system, right? You, if you can fail while you're still in the flat part of the curve, right? In a linear system, if you don't fail right here, right, you have a problem. In an exponential system, if you fail here, right, you've not lost so much. If, and if you're here, uh, you won't fail anymore because you've already proven it, right? So that's, um, I think exponential models are natural models. They're the models, this is how nature works. This is the game of life. This is, I mean, we've just experienced exponential uh, ourselves, right? It's a pandemic. But actually, if you look at nature, it's everywhere. Like, this is how um, plants multiply. This is how... Um, genetic mutation happens this is and of course these these complex systems they have dolls right and then you see extinction events and all that and how does it recover i mean for me uh, the most interesting thing i saw during the lockdown is how amazingly fast nature recovers in spaces and even though the the values of co2 and so on have not gone down much right just leaving nature to to itself like not intruding all the time did a whole other thing like nature is incredibly resilient and it's it's a combination of many 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 exponential systems working to create an equilibrium like in our current way of thinking of putting things together it's always we put things on top of each other and then they're great right in in nature we have things pulling at each other creating an equilibrium and these things that pull at each other are typically exponential systems. So I believe that exponential models and exponential technology should be at the core of a lot of thinking. And I know that for all of us, this is tough, right? Because we don't think exponentially, we think linearly. And then everybody knows this example of the chess game where the inventor of chess offered any reward says like, I want you to put 
one rice corn on the first uh, field of the chess field and then double it on every field, right? And the king, not understanding exponential, says, like, no problem. And as he found out that that's simply not possible because the last mountain of rice would be larger than the Himalayas, um, that king solved the problem in a bad way, right? He executed the inventor. Um, but, but that's the point, right? Exponential not come natural to us. And this is why for some people who want to make advantage, um, it's easy to take advantage because people don't see you until you're like irreplaceable. Um, and this is, this is where we have to lose our fear of this. And this is where we have to finally find a way of combining rational thinking and emotion, right? Because currently we're kind of too emotional. Like it's all about how do I feel? That's great. But where do we want to go? Right? So, um, it's, it's a lot of people have swallowed a lot of hard feelings because they knew where they were going. Um, and I think that's also true for all entrepreneurs, right? You can endure a lot if you believe in what, what you're doing. Um, and that's, that's, I think, very important. And this is how to get there. We have to accept exponential technologies. Nature works like this. We have to pull our minds together, even if it hurts, to kind of think through it. And then we have to accept the fact that this is an e equilibrating system. It's not a system of constant success. It's a system of drawbacks and things pulling against each other. And that's a good thing, right? Because that way we get to an equilibrium. Right. So I know that within this context of um, digitization the, and globalization, many people are concerned with the privacy you as an artificial intelligence expert, can you say something about that on how we can protect ourselves? Uh, now we're in a crisis and how can we prevent autocracy from occurring as we see where potentially many governments are falling? What are the, 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 the acupuncture points that we need to be aware of and use? Um, look, the the important point in this is that I think that privacy is absolutely essential. Put, this is, let me put this first. If you have a society um, that is built on individual values, privacy is absolutely essential. If privacy is absolutely essential, it also means that trust is absolutely essential. Right? Because if you're not disclosing everything, at some point you have to trust people. Um, but everything is built on trust, right? A family is built on trust. Um, everything is built on trust. A government is built, a state is built on trust. The economic system is built on trust. And now we have all these measures in compliance and so on to make sure that we can trust each other or we're inventing technologies that don't need trust like blockchain. But in the end, what we really are craving for is the olden days when we could go to someone, do business like this, and be sure that we wouldn't be like cheated. Um, so I believe that privacy and trust go hand in hand. Um, and that is important. And the, the first step towards privacy is that we start valuing it. Right? Currently, we don't value it. If you look, if you look at um, the big dystopias of the last century, right? Uh, 1984, Brave New World, Clockwork Orange, none of those authors would have invented, could have imagined that we would implement all their invasions into privacy that they deemed so horrible without dictatorship, 
we have implemented almost all of this for comfort. Right? So the number one thing for privacy is we've got to value it. If we don't value it, personally value it, meaning that if we can use a service either for pay or for personal data, you can use it for personal data, no problem, right? It's a valid business model, but you've got to understand what you're doing. And sometimes maybe you prefer to just pay for it, right? There's no such thing as free lunch. We've come to, to understand that everything is free, right? Everything is free. So journalism, like one of the most important thing in an information heavy world has come, it has converted to sensationalism, right? Because it's run by ads and eyeballs. Like why can't we pay journalists, good journalists to do their work? Um, is it, we, we, we should be paying for this. Um, everything is free for now, but it's not because you're paying with your privacy. All right, so you've, we've, we've got to, first, we've got to value it. Second, um, we've got to understand that if we have machines do a lot, um, which is happening with AI, AI is all about automation and the more it comes, if it, the, the machines learn from us, either because we tell them or because um, we feed them with data that happened when we worked or interacted or lived, um, that means that all the biases, all the prejudice, all the discrimination, all the racism um, we have in us, and there's no unbiased person in the world, um, all of this is multiplied by machines. Right, so we've got it. This is not bad, right? Because it exists today. But if you're unaware of this, then it gets dangerous, right? Because you expect machines are always right and so on. But if we have to multiply biases and prejudice, then that's exactly what's going to happen. And this is why we need to be the control factor. Like we need to govern those machines because machines don't have their own will. We have will. We have purpose. Machines don't. They're tools, no matter how smart they seem. Right. So, so how do we do that? That's the next question, because as you just said, there are people with at different levels of consciousness, people of all types of cultures and uh, levels of evolution. How do we ensure that that gets implemented, given the differences between egocentric thinking, ethnocentric thinking, world centric or other? How do we make that shift and how can we pro I mean, AI as as you know, I'm an AI person myself, is as good as the programmer. So the programmer's bias, as you said, is basically built into the system they develop. And the data, right? So programmer and yeah. data into it. Uh, but most people that you use the system now are unaware that the system is even biased. Yes. Right? So what I think is we've got we've to get back to a world where we understand that it's emotion and rational thinking. We have to be able to fight. We've got to be able to have a discussion without hating each other, right? So currently this all, you're either with us or against us, right? This, this is the wrong thinking. You have a different opinion, let me learn from you, right? And I have a different opinion from you. I'm gonna try the best I can to convince you. And this is not going to be a pleasant conversation, but one that we, if we go into the conversation, both of us open-minded, we will walk away both smarter. Right, so that's that's what comes out of this. If we simply accept, yeah, this is what it is, um, then we can take it from there. But if we believe that no, this is the final say of stuff, then that's of course not true. And this is, I think, we need to 
value privacy. We've got to understand that trust is important. I think trust is way more important than transparency. Um, we've got to understand that we need to have a fight and not in the physical sense. We need to have a good debate. We've got to be able to debate without offend, offending each other constantly, right? Is disagreeing is a great tool of learning, right? This is what needs to happen. But currently disagreement is, making mistakes is, like, is not bad unless you're trying to fix them, right? Stuff, uh, unless you're not trying to fix them. So all of this, this has to come back. It's already been there. Like if you look at the old philosophies, like this is how, the Greek philosophers and the Roman philosophers actually came to their arguments, right? And this is this is um, how the scientific method works, right? You make a hypothesis, you, you try to evaluate it and so on. Um, but if we make this unfallible, then we get a problem. Like if, if being wrong, uh, like discards you, that's a serious problem. That that can happen, and I think this is this is the important part, and this is where we as a society have to learn. Like I've just seen a cartoon. I'd like to share uh, the, the the contents of the cartoon. Right? It's it's a parent talking to their kid and say like, "Oh, what's the word that you say, and then you get what you want?" Um, and obviously, the parent is thinking of please, right? And the kids very proudly says there, "I was like, I'm offended." <laughs> right? That's a problem. Right? That's a problem. Um, we have to learn to deal with the fact that there's different opinions and that different opinions is not uh, an attack on your person, but it's a, an opportunity to learn something. And I think this is the most fundamental thing, the curiosity to learn something new and the respect for others so you can see that they're having their different opinion, not because they're jerks, but because they want to learn from you and you can learn from them. We've, by the way, this is, it sounds very philosophical. It directly applies to financing. And that's exactly the last question that I was going to, uh, to ask you. How can we ensure that that kind of thinking, it's mindset development and growth and becoming a better person, better civilization can inform and influence and eventually transform financial systems and the entire economic system? What has to happen in order for us to achieve that? I know that's a very simple question. Yeah, let's like, um, how about we solve um, string theory before this, right? So, yep. <laughs> um, no, but I do have an opinion on it and I, I can share with you, right? So I, I believe that um, we have to make sure that evaluation happens on a more long-term basis. I would say that's the very key that is in there because long-term sustainability wins, long-term adaptability wins and so on. So our evaluation by making them even more short-term so we can run better arbitrage and speculation models, right, is not a good idea. And then you can, uh, oftentimes I hear that rich people or capitalists are being blamed for this. This is not true, right? In, in a true capitalist system, someone who invests can lose, right? The problem is if we rig the casino and no one can lose anymore, the one who comes in the casino with most money wins most. Um, that's, that's the problem that we have in there. Um, and the question is like, can we not, if, if, we, do, if we, we should not prevent loss, but we should stop stigmatizing loss or failure. So that's, that's, I think, the key answer to how this can be implemented in finance. 
Um, and then we've got to understand our goals, right? What's our goal? Um, is our goal truly profit maximization? Does that, is that, does that make us happy? Right. So in, in, in the German constitution, it starts out with, um, it's about the dignity of people. Uh, in the American constitution, it says it's happiness. Um, in the end, these are very similar things. In fact, if they're not the same, dignity and happiness, right? So there will be no happiness without dignity. Um, there will be no dignity without happiness in the end. And, and uh, it's a natural biological like mechanism for us to feel happiness. Um, so we could go with this. So the question really is, what are we striving for? Are we striving for social cohesion, uh, which we see in a, in a few Asian models? Are we striving for just profit maximization and egotism? Or are we striving for something more humane? Are, are, do we measure happiness of a lot of us? It's impossible to make everybody happy, right? And there, the point disagreement will not always happen in a civil way. I just have experience with this. Um, but disagreement can happen for the most part in a civil way, bringing us forward as a society. And then we, ha we really have to think of, of what's the system. And the system is defined by its goals. And if we can set the goal of being more human, I think that would be awesome. Yes, returning to our humanity, which then eventually creates a well-being economy in which people can be happy because you cannot make anyone happy. You're either happy by yourself, whether you have or you have not, or you are not. It's not a... It's just a state of being, happiness. So what a wonderful way to end this conversation. Thank you so very much for your time and generosity and wisdom and for being with us. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com. 